This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Long-term care is usually a hot topic. This Monday was no different, only it was hotter as advocates are pushing for more to be done about air conditioning in nursing homes. Common areas in all homes now have AC, though many residents' rooms still do not. ACs in designated cooling areas. The province says 6 in 10 homes have it in residents' rooms. 1 in 4 are making upgrades to become fully air-conditioned. Joining me to discuss, the Zoomer Squad. Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder. Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. CARP was talking about this five years ago. We talked about this issue uh, about this time last year when I uh, took part in my first of these uh, Monday noon hour uh, discussions and still uh, not happening. And and the government isn't admitting what the what the pro- uh, the problem is. We have had CARP members tell us they've tried, for instance, to put their uh, take uh, air conditioners into their own loved ones' roof and install individual ones. They can't do that. Uh, two reasons uh, mainly. One is the windows in uh, long-term care facilities, especially the older ones, aren't built to, to hold a portable air conditioner. And uh, secondly, the electrical systems would not support all those air conditioners running in buildings. So so it's a huge job because it means uh, completely uh, reworking the entire uh, cooling uh, uh, system. If they don't already have forced air into their rooms, which most of them don't, it's going to be even more difficult. So uh, the government promised something that it's going to take a long time to uh uh, to deliver in, in terms of individual rooms and uh, bad on them for setting up hopes for something they should have known they couldn't deliver. David? It's not like summer's a surprise. It's not like <clears throat> there's been a sudden change in our climate and we've never had this need before. I agree with Bill uh, completely. It's, it's um, something that could have been anticipated. It's something that could have been worked on Heaven knows they have enough bureaucrats over there. They could have had a team working exclusively on this problem for a year now. So um, the question becomes, why wasn't more action taken earlier? And I think uh, Bill nailed it in four words, too little, too late, again. <laughs> I'll add a fifth word again. And Peter. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's a good initiative, you know, because um, I, I visited these homes and uh, it's no fun when it's, it's hot outside and, you know, the patient or the resident is sweltering and you're sweltering and the, and the staff is sweltering. So it's a good thing, but it sort of underscores the notion that Bill brought up that some of these homes are just too old to retrofit, you know, like these, especially some of the uh, private ones. And um you, you can you can put in a window unit or you can you can put in a cooling area but it doesn't get around the fact that these homes are outdated a lot of them and they need uh, replacing and not not retrofitting so um 
perhaps it'll be a uh, an incentive for the government to move on that and and just get rid of these these old places where where which struggled to deal with infection rates and struggle mightily on every issue it seems even if i excused which i don't for a second uh, years of neglect in the past the question is what does the government what does the ministry of long term care owe people living in long term care today because we know statistically the, the high percentage of people over the age of 80, 85 with comorbidities, we know the length of time they're going to be in a long-term care home under the best of circumstances is under five years, unfortunately, before they pass. What is, what's, what, how are they supposed to live in the short term while we're waiting for the province to come up with the, with the beds, as Peter correctly points out? It's a long term. So I would argue in favor. I, I realize that you might say, well, it's throwing, you know, good money after bad to try to retrofit these homes. There's human beings living in these homes right, right now. Okay. And they can't wait 10 years for the big, bold, new, wonderful, sleek product to come online. Who's helping them right now? Don't we owe them something while they're in these facilities? Where is the plan to improve the facilities we have in the short run? While, of course, I agree, paying attention to upgrading in the long run. I don't see a plan. David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, who all make up the Zoomer Squad every Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Just as we finished that discussion, the province announced it was moving up the first stage of the reopening to Friday. So our next guest, University Health Network infectious diseases expert Dr. Alon Vaisman was among the first to react. I think it's all great news, especially when you hear about things opening up on the on the outside. Um, anything that's outdoors is a very low risk in terms of transmission. So these kinds of things could have been done probably even weeks ago. And the low risk nature of these interactions, coupled with the fact that case numbers have dropped dramatically over the last four or five weeks, and the hospitalization numbers have dro- dropped means that this is a very safe move and makes a lot of sense. Dr. David Williams, the chief medical officer, said we would have to see daily cases in the 500 to 600 range on a regular basis. Obviously, uh, it's been a while since we've seen in the low fives, like last September, it's been that long. But it, it you could see that numbers were trending well under 1,000. And to have some areas, I mean, Toronto, just over 100. Peel, under 100. Uh, 500 for the whole province. It'd be nice if we could have said breaking news, no new cases, but we're not there yet. So as you say, everything uh, uh, pointing to this could have been done earlier. However, yeah. the Delta variant now, does that, uh, threaten us here if we're not careful. So w- when you talk about the variant, there's a, certainly concern that there's increased risk of death associated with the variant compared to the other variants previously here in Canada. The thing is that there's two distinct concepts, concepts to keep in mind. One, is the variant going to be the predominant strain in Ontario? The, the answer is probably yes. It'll likely become the predominant strain fairly soon. But the second question is, when that happens, will the total case numbers be very high or will they be very low? If the case numbers are high, that's obviously a big concern. If they're low, then the fact that the variant has become the dominant strain isn't as relevant. And the reason that the case numbers will be low or hopefully will be low when that occurs 
will be because we've had vaccinations in for the majority of the population, and I mean two doses. So for certainly getting one dose into the population, we're now up to 50-60% now across Canada, or I think 60% across Canada, means that the likelihood of cases going up again, having another bump, is now very low. So there is certainly concern with the variant, but as long as we're continuing at a very higher pace right now, as we are in Ontario with vaccinations, then we should be okay and avoid another wave. With the Delta variant, this one that appears to be on the way of becoming the the most dominant one uh, here in Ontario, is it less effective with the yes. the second dose? Right. So the, the best data we have available to us now is from the UK, where this variant has become more common there and has and in a population that has a high rate of vaccination. So what they found was that compared to the previous strains that were circulating in the UK, similar to here, the vac- single-dose vaccination is less effective against this strain. But double vaccination is all, pretty much the same as effective. And they're talking about all forms of disease. So it's about 30 to 40% less effective compared to the previous strains with only one dose. And that's why the rush now to get the double vaccinations going as fast as we can, predominantly to the people who are most vulnerable, like the elderly population, and secondly, to the group of people who have immunocompromised or other health conditions, which may cause them to have more severe disease. But still, I mean, the variant is becoming more prevalent here, and we still have not seen any significant rises. So we're definitely going in the right direction. Definitely the the rate we're going at with our very high daily vaccination rates is very positive information. Some can see by the end of the year that things being maybe not totally the way they were, but a lot better than they were uh, when this first hit us. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's many, many great cases to look around the world to see this, especially in America. Another good example where if you look at their sporting events, how open they are now and how, you know, with vaccination rates that, of course, are ahead of us in terms of doubly vaccinated, but we're not that much farther behind from them. There's so many reasons to be optimistic. Um, many states are going down in terms of cases, even as they've opened up. Texas is a great example of that. So, yeah, there are many reasons to be optimistic for the next three months. University Health Network infectious diseases expert, Dr. Alon Vaisman. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Consi. Coming up after the break, more reaction to stage one of the reopening. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. With word the reopening of the economy was starting sooner, many business owners and customers are eager and excited. And while this is great news for many, what about the countless businesses that this announcement leaves behind? Libby spoke with Perry Tucciaroni of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada and Donna Dewar, co-owner, Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village. We're taking a very measured approach to our opening, Libby. We, we, uh, we're, we're nervous. We don't know what to expect. I know there's so much pent-up demand uh, from our guests, and we want to be able to deliver you know, an exceptional service to them, but it, it, yeah, we're we're apprehensive, excited, uh, you know, jitters at the altar, I guess you could call it. Perry, what about you? Your industry is not really opening up. There, your outdoor fitness classes are allowed. Uh, I'm not sure uh, where that leaves your members. 
uh, at least most of the members uh, unable to start exercising again. Uh, we are grateful that they've included outdoor, uh, you know, outdoor classes. But the reality is, most of these fitness facilities aren't, you know, aren't prepared or don't have the wherewithal to do outdoor classes. Some do, which is great. Uh, it depends where the location is, moving equipment, so it's a lot more difficult for them to do. So we're, we're very disappointed that we've been moved back to we're in, in step three. Uh, we, we really feel, especially there's a there's a lot of data with the other provinces because Ontario kind of followed the framework of four other provinces: uh, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. And we are way behind of our reopening for the fitness industry when compared to the other provinces. That's where it's disappointing to us. Mm-hmm. Where where are they at? Well, as we quickly go through it, like for example, for uh, group exercise with restrictions, um, this is like BC that is June fifteenth, uh, Alberta is June fifteenth, May twenty fourth for Saskatchewan, uh, Quebec is May thirty first to June fourteenth, and right now we're looking at the uh, end of July, probably like July twenty third. <laughs> Excuse me. Plus, they're all at fifty percent of the first dose. Is 70% where Ontario is requiring 80%. 70%. Then when you look at indoor uh, fitness with no, uh, you know, with no restrictions, uh, you know, BC early July, September for, uh, for uh, Alberta, June 14th for Saskatchewan, August for um, Quebec, and there's really no uh, data. There's no uh, rules for Ontario. They haven't outlined what that would look like yet. Does it bother you that, for instance, some indoor religious gatherings are going to be allowed? Uh, the Premier just announced that he's going to ease restrictions for this vigil that's being held tonight. Do, do you find that kind of unfair? I don't think it's unfair. Like, we support that. Like, I'm, we're not against the religious gatherings, you know, having the, you know, having the opportunity to be open and uh, have their uh, ceremonies with the proper rules. We just want to be fair for us as well. Uh, we feel we, sh- you know, our push is to move us to step one as non-essential retail at 15% of, you know, at 50% of capacity. Uh, we think that's more than fair as a starting point, uh, especially with the frustrating with our government. We're the only province in Canada that the FIC has not been given a seat at the table to discuss with the government what we've done, the, the steps we've taken to keep our, our members safe during this uh, pandemic. Uh, and, uh, for example, we have data when the, you know, while the fitness centers open in Ontario, we've had from our member facilities over 15 million check-ins where they've been allowed to open without one single incident of COVID-19 community transmission. That's where our frustration comes because we can take the steps to, first, to have a safe environment. Obviously, nothing's perfect. And, we, and plus, we really impact the health and well-being, physical and mental well-being of the Ontarians, and that's being neglected as well, too. Donna, what would you like to leave us with? I think we need to focus now on, on safe reopening and maintaining and maintaining that level of safety so we don't go into another situation with a lockdown. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see, to see our guests coming back to our patio. And I need to do some exercising myself. So I'll be there for you, Perry. <laughs> and I need to do some uh, sitting on a patio. So yeah, I, I need to do both. I need to do both, yeah. Everyone I speak to, the first thing they tell us is, I can hardly wait to go back to a restaurant patio. Donna Dewar, co-owner Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village, and Perry Tuccioroni of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. 
I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Also on the minds of many this week was the deadly vehicular attack in London, Ontario that claimed four members of a Muslim family and left a nine-year-old boy orphaned. The strategy panel, Charles Souza, former Ontario finance minister, John Campobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor, now chief executive at Variety Village, weighed in. I, I think that it is important to call it a terrorist attack, and I, and I think it does heighten the awareness of everybody that uh, these acts are not random acts of a, of a, of 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 an individual, but they're in fact targeted acts against a group. And so, the more that we have that dialogue and recognize that that's what it is, those are the types of uh, conversations that will lead to tangible actions. John. Yeah, I actually I actually commend the, the, the Prime Minister for, for being out there and actually saying that. I think there's been some hesitation in the past, and, and the fact that he's been you know pretty quick out to say that this was a terrorist attack, I think the Premier, uh, Premier Ford has as well. Um, you know, just, just the thought of this, Libby, is just beyond imagination and beyond reality that, that somebody, a, a family just walking on a, on a street, uh, you know, being, being mauled over by a car, uh, is just beyond what anybody can sort of comprehend. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, and, and I think people are, are, are wanting to find out exactly what motivated this person to do this. Like what, there's been some talk of, of, of you know, inciting uh, racism and hatred in, in, within, within his, his issue and stuff. But I, I just, I think that there's going to be a process and the process is going to be, um, you know, to find out exactly what motivated it. But, but to call it a terrorist attack, which I think is what it was, does give it, to Karen's point, a heightened sense of, of importance. Uh, and it also allows, you know, others who may think about doing something like this to maybe think twice. You know, the fact that the, that the government and leaders are, are more than prepared to call something like this a terrorist attack and, 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 and throw the full weight of the, of the court and the justice system at it, uh, hopefully might prevent this from happening again. Although, you know, just the way things are, we don't expect this in Canada. We see this happening in the U.S., but we don't see this in Canada, and it's happening way too much in this country, and it's got to stop. And I think Jagmeet Singh's um, very emotional speech at the, in, the, in the parliament earlier today was, was bang on. How many more families have to get mauled over before something happens? Charles, I mean, what is it that suddenly all of this is is coming to the surface. It's really distressing, Libby, and, and I, I, this is a much bigger issue. I mean, like many of you, I've shared my sympathies with our Muslim friend, but words, even the words of the Prime Minister and the opposition, it has meanings, but is it enough? I mean, can we defend against hate and terrorist behavior? Obviously not. So my real worry, to your point, Libby, is this is a growing phenomena throughout North America, United States, and now in Canada, there's been prevalent issues that have uh, been targeting various groups, the Muslim, as you've mentioned, various groups. Um, and the, the, the system seems to feed on its own hate, right? Because then these other groups start to retaliate. They start to become more organized, and they become seduced in some respects by the cruelty and the nature of a few that then builds a counterreaction. And that's what really worries me, is the fact that now the racist groups become to multiply. You know, these extremists are preying on the very notion of those moderates that have some doubt already, and this will then escalate because there may be now a counter-reaction to some of these issues. And that only creates separation within our community, and that can't happen. 
I mean, we've seen racism around the world over the ages. People demonize one another because it's more convenient and easier to, you know, to justify their actions. But it worries me to no end that this is starting to grow. And I don't know the solution to this other than reaffirming and, re- and talking and educating and, and being informed. Um, it's dangerous. And, and this, I feel so badly for this innocent family um, who could be any one of us dressed in that form, and that's enough for them to cause this reaction. It's really sad. The Strategy Panel, Charles Souza, former Ontario Finance Minister, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Melanie in High Park weighed in on air conditioning in nursing homes. We wouldn't have known that they had no air conditioning. This is not the first year that we've had a heat wave. What's been happening for the last 40 years that we've had heat waves, people who couldn't get out of their bed, sweltering? How many died? Do we have the statistics? Did the inspectors report that, you know what, this is a heat wave? Did they go in during heat waves and say, how many people here are sick? They're already immobilized. They're on medications where they can't overheat. There are, my friend's a nurse, and there are so many medications, she told me, that seniors, when they take them, it's very crucial for them to have a cool environment, not hot. Lee in Toronto thinks she has a solution. Why can't we put up the modular homes that are being put up for people who were homeless, who have uh, had uh, difficulty finding a place, wanting to go into a place? They've done that. It'll not take a, a year to put up. There could be air conditioning. There could be single rooms. There could be washrooms in each individual room. Air conditioning, very important. Very. We've all lived through non-air conditioning in our lives as a senior. And this is my question. Modular homes have been available for many, many, many years. They're not that expensive to put up. They could take down the other home, the other old home, rebuild it, reestablish the people in those areas, temporarily have them in modular homes and have those other modular homes instead of putting up all of these MZOs. David in Peterborough is one who feels the province should have waited to start reopening the economy. My opinion on the opening is that it's happening too soon. Although the number of new cases is declining, it's not, they're not declining nearly as rapidly as the government would have us believe. And the reason for that is... Um, the amount of testing that the government has been doing each day has steadily declined since the beginning of April. Beginning of April, they were doing 60,000 tests a day, and now they're averaging about 25,000 tests a day. So when they say, like yesterday, the new case numbers were, I think, 525, in reality, some they're not that low. And now... 
Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jason Inotobicoe on the province's desire to invoke the notwithstanding clause in order to restore parts of a law on third-party election advertising deemed unconstitutional by the courts. I believe that this is entirely unconstitutional. The government, the laws have said that. It's an abuse of power, clearly trying to gerrymander things towards the conservatives. Go figure that they passed this law the same day that it shows in a recent poll that the NDP is in neck and neck with the conservatives. Now, they're passing this law because they, uh, and, uh, because it's clearly, they've clearly spent four years attacking workers and now they don't want workers to have a voice. What they do want is their rich donors to be able to funnel money through Matamy Homes into uh, Ontario Proud. Doug Ford didn't have a problem with that. This is a matter about who gets the talk. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.